Ah, the sweet matrix. Man, I remember the first time I saw that scene, and, you know, being one that has a love of theology, I'm always looking at how uh, story kind of mimics issues of theology. And that particular narrative of the story, I thought, man, that captures the context of our existence well. That we, all of us, every one of us, was born into this world, and this world really is a prison. This world really is engaged in a cosmic battle. And everyone, when we enter this world, we are born in slavery, under an oppressor. We are blinded. We are uh, unaware of the context and design. and, and, And really, we're unaware of the full scope of what's really going on in the full layers of all that God has established. We just don't realize that. In fact, it was really uh, that way for all of us until at some point Christ opened our eyes, until Christ gave us a vision for the whole scope of reality around us, and then we could see more clearly. But until that day, we were under the sway of an enemy, a ruthless enemy, a powerful enemy that wants to control and rule and ultimately destroy. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul talks about this. He says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work and the sons of disobedience. See, we were born in a world immersed in blindness. We were estranged, engulfed, entangled, overwhelmed, underwhelmed. We believed in a thousand different gods, or we believed a thousand different arguments going against the one true God. This was our problem. We were under the power of the prince of the power of the air. We were under the devil. We were under Satan. That's what our condition was. We were just plugged into the system. We didn't even know that there was a system that we were plugged into. But what we know as Christians is that light penetrated the darkness. And the one true God, the one holy God, the one loving God, the one gracious God invaded our space with the gospel, the cross and resurrection of Christ. He comes into our world. He opens blind eyes. He frees the captives. He liberates our thinking to see the truth of the glorious gospel. And when that happened, we went from a kingdom of darkness to a kingdom of the Son of God's love. There was a transfer. This is what Paul writes about in Colossians chapter 1 when he says, He, God, has delivered us from that domain, the domain of darkness, and he transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son. We are now free. The church is free. And from that, we are the church that is the difference maker. We are the church that is the tide turned. We are the church that are the ambassadors and are the warriors and are the messengers of the message of freedom and victory in Christ. And what we want to own is that as the church of Christ, we are a church unstoppable, unshakable, unlikely, but undaunted because we have His power. That's what Jesus wants us to know. That is what the Spirit has laid on the heart of Paul. And so that is what Paul begins to preach to us in this last installment in Ephesians. What this is all about, what it looks like, and what we're called to do. So if you have a Bible, please open up to the book of Ephesians chapter 6. 
Ephesians chapter 6, we're going to be starting in verse 10. And I love the way it starts. Paul opens with a single word, which is finally. Finally. See, that's critical because he said all sorts of things about who we are and who God is and what He expects and everything else, and now He's hitting the final stride based on everything we've seen and everything we know. Finally, there's something I want you to do. Now, I have to warn you this morning, I'm going to be very passionate at times, I'm going to be very loud, and you all are going to be very wet because I will spit a lot in this direction because I am so excited, all right? Just FYI, and that fire alarm double excited me, all right? So, here's the deal. Finally, he says... Be strong in the Lord. Now, you, you might not think much of that. You might even look at that and say, oh, yeah, yeah that's, that's good, that's wise, that's right. Um, I, I couldn't help this week but see that and get locked onto it for a few minutes because I, I started comparing it against my own life. Let me tell you a problem that I have in my life. It's a single soul fundamental problem. My problem is I'm male, all right? And when you're male, you like to do things on your own, Right? You like to be independent. You like to figure it out on your own. You don't want to ask for directions. I will go to the store. I will wander the aisles for hours before I ask, where's the peanut butter? All right? It's just not going to... Man, I will find nuts and turn them to peanut butter before I ask somebody, where's the peanut butter? Right? Because I want to do it on my own. My strength, my might, my resolve, my purposes, my timetable. Right? I want to do it on my own. Paul says something that's profound. He says, be strong in the Lord. See, why this resonated with me is because I know that at times, as a pastor and a Christian and a father and husband, I want to do things for the Lord. I want to be strong for the Lord. I want to be wise for the Lord. I want to serve for the Lord. That's not what Paul commands. He doesn't tell me, go and do this for God. He says, go and do this in God. There's a big difference between doing things for God and doing things in God. Right? One is about me finding the strength. The other is about me going to Him, and He is the one that provides the strength. And that is different. There's a big difference. And so Paul in his wisdom, Jesus in his love, says, man, I'm not asking you to be strong in your own resolve. I'm asking you to be strong in me, in the strength of His might. It's more about faith than it is about fortitude. It's more about dependence than it is about determination. Right? And that's a hard thing for us, especially as Westerners, because we're so used to earning our own way, and we're so used to trying to accomplish our own goals, and we hold work ethic as a high value, which is good, but sometimes at the cost of what this really means, where God is saying, I want to be a conduit, or I want you, rather, to be a conduit of my strength through you. I want to be strong through you. I want to be strong in you. I want to do it through your life. See, what makes this hard is that requires submission. That, that requires seeking God. That requires dwelling. See, that requires us to look at our life and our schedule in such a way that says, man, how do I spend more time with God so God can do the work in me? How do I yield my life more to His purposes so He can live His purposes through me? And let me guarantee you something right here. The more we get that figured out, the more that we're saying, God, do it in me, the more you will experience the pleasure of God, the passion of God, the drive of God, the presence of God. You'll experience that because it's God doing it in you. It's not you doing it for God. But like I said, that requires dwelling and seeking and praying and depending and time isolated and 
honesty before God. And again, it's, it's, it's all about the investment. And if the investment's not there, we're going to be bewildered. And if the investment's not there, frankly, what I'm about to go into in verse 11 will make no sense and will be impossible to achieve. Because what we're about to see requires that intimacy to God. That power that only He can provide. Because what we're going to go up against is not some natural foe. It is a supernatural enemy with supernatural resolve to wipe out, destroy, thwart, kill, maim Christ church. See, because He can't, He, he can't really go after Jesus. He can't go after God. He can't go after, after the Holy Spirit. But He can go after us. And so Jesus knows this. And so He says, you've got to be strong in me. In my might and my strength. So go, great, how do we do that? Ephesians says we strap on. We strap on. Verse 11, put on the whole armor of God. And I want you to notice that, that key word, whole. Right? Uh, the tendency is going to be sometimes to say, all right, well, uh, some of these are easier for me. Like, um, yeah, I got the gospel, totally, I, I, I got it. Um, truth, I dig truth. Faith, ah, man, that is not so easy for me. Uh, what do I have here? Salvation, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm saved. But there's some other things here, the word. I don't, I don't know if the word is so much my thing. I don't get into it much. And, and so Paul's going to say, no, 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 you've got to get it. You've got to put it all on. You've got to put it all on. Some things are going to be easier. Some things are going to be harder. All of it you have to strap on. It's no different than a soldier that goes to war or an athlete that takes the field. If you've got a football player that hits the field and he's got a helmet and knee pads, but he has no shoulder pads, what's the problem there? Well, he's not going to go at it full bore, and the opposing team's going to know his weaknesses. They're going to go for the shoulders every time, right? If a soldier goes off to war and he's got his flak jacket and his boots, but he's not wearing a helmet, what, what is the enemy going to shoot at? Right? The weak spot. Paul knows this, so he's going to say, you know what, as we go into this combat, there is an enemy that just absolutely detests everything that you stand for, and he will look for every weak spot he can find, therefore put on the full armor. Every bit of it. We do this so that we may be able to stand. To stand. And when Paul uses this word, he, he sees it as both offensive and defensive. To stand against the onslaught that works against our faith and to stand up for the very faith that can bring freedom to those who don't know Christ. So when we see stand, don't think it's just hold your ground. It's advance the cause. It's both. And Paul's going to use this word uh, about four or five times. Stand, he's going to say. Keep standing. Withstand. You need to stand. You armor up to stand. To move forward and move forward and resolve and passion and focus and to hold your ground in the face of opposition because you have an enemy. We do this to stand against the schemes of the devil. Now, here's the thing I want us to get about this. Um, in our culture, there's a lot of images of Satan, almost all of which are wrong. We see him as a dude about this high, red, pitchfork, horns, never wears pants. You know, like, ooh, a demon hobbit, right? So, like, you get that. Or he's this hideous beast creature that if you were to see him, you would instantly know that's evil incarnate, right? That's the images that we have. When you look at the Bible, you see that the image is very different. You look at Scripture, you find that he was once the mightiest of the angels. The mightiest. 
And in his pride and strength and power, he revolted against God. He wanted to take the throne of God. He wanted to make himself to be God. And from that, there was this powerful, destructive fall from grace. Fall from power. Fall from purpose. But he's still this powerful angel of light. Not darkness. Of gifting. Of intellect. He's internally twisted. He's bent on destruction. And his motivation is simply out of spite. Here's the thing. Satan doesn't control hell. Satan doesn't own hell. Satan doesn't take up residence in hell. He doesn't even have a condo in hell. All right, it's not. Hell's not Satan's. That's another one of those myths. Well, heaven's God's, hell's Satan's. No, it's not. Satan eventually is going to end up in hell, but Satan has no authority, power, presence, or purpose with hell. So hell is not his domain. And Satan isn't looking for worshipers because it's not going to continue. He's not trying to rally more worshipers to himself. He doesn't care what system one believes or doesn't believe. He doesn't care what their morality is or isn't. It doesn't matter to him. He has one goal. It's a methodical goal. It's a series of schemes designed to take away the glory from God. That's it. It is just spite. He hates the cross, he hates Christ, he hates God, he hates the gospel, he hates it, so he uses schemes to thwart the church and to blind the world. Here's what I want you to understand about your adversary. Your adversary, he speaks a thousand languages. He knows every custom, he's aware of every trend, all research, he's completely aware of the collective social psyche. He watches our homes. He watches our habits. He watches the change in our pulse and the dilation of our pupils when there's something that excites us that we think nobody else notices. That is what he watches. He listens to our conversations. He listens to our mumbles. He reads our journal. He follows us on Twitter, on Facebook, on Snapchat. He listens to our phone calls. He reads our texts. He checks our internet history before it's deleted. He is always aware. He is a consummate theologian, and philosopher, scientist, professor, artist, counselor, sociologist, therapist, psychologist, ambassador, politician, director, marketer, philanthropist, activist, and celebrity. He has spent thousands of years honing learning, modeling, adapting, perfecting his methodology. He uses religion, politics, entertainment, ethics, values, culture, Bible, church, education, sports, capitalism, communism, socialism, atheism, theism, depression, anger, jubilation, joy, love, hate, war, peace, indifference. He doesn't care as long as it serves his goal in the end to kill, steal, and destroy. That is your enemy. And that should scare the hell out of you. And the reality is, it doesn't. The reality is, he plays this game that says, believe in me, but don't really believe in me. Affirm me on paper as a theological motif. Just don't think I'm actually in your space. Don't think I'm really pulling the strings. Don't think I'm really active. Don't think I'm a real threat. That's all he wants to do. And so while that truth, that kind of all-watching eye attitude truth should freak us out and scare the hell out of us, it doesn't do that. Instead, we go, oh yeah, yeah, that's true, that's true. 
but we don't take the war seriously. We don't. I don't. I'm just confessing, and I'm, I'm one that's a big advocate of there is an actual spiritual war, and I still realize in my own life that, you know what, instead of taking the battle seriously, sometimes the issues of Christ, his gospel, the word, the church, whatever, they play second, and what plays first is my hobbies, my interests, my entertainment, my family, my other things that I want to do, and those get the lion's share of my emphasis, the lion's share of my focus, the lion's share of my passion, because in the end, I think that this world, as I see it, is really the real world. I don't see that this here is the actual real world. That's the problem we face. This is why the New Testament says, be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So resist him. Firm in your faith. Give no foothold to the devil. I mean, this is the way that the writers begin to tell us how we combat this very real battle. It's not the way we normally do it. It's not legislation. It's not rules. It's not taking up arms. It's standing in the faith. It's being aware and believing the battle's real. If we don't ever make that jump, if it doesn't become daily, potently real, you know what? We're just going to keep doing our thing and the enemy's going to keep exploiting our lives with his schemes that we don't think are real schemes. So Paul knows what he is writing here. He knows what the Holy Spirit is asking. And he's telling us what our real battle is. And here's the thing. Our enemy, our enemy is not Hollywood. Our enemy is not DC. Our enemy is not some agenda of some group. Our enemy is not across the Atlantic with radical Islam or anything else. Those are not the enemy. In fact, the true enemy wants you to believe that that's the enemy. He wants you to resent the very people we are called to reach. He wants you to have animosity toward the very people that are enslaved. So he's going to keep saying, yep, 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 I'm not your enemy. They're your enemy. Other things are your enemy. Uh, the world, people, uh, individuals, they're your enemy. But Paul says in verse 12, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. He says, they're not the enemy. For Paul, Rome wasn't the enemy. Right? Even though Paul would lose his own life at the hands of men, flesh and blood, Paul would say, they're not. They're not the enemy. People are just linemen. Satan's the quarterback. They're just manipulated pawns. He's the one that's really driving the boat. He's darkened their eyes so that they do not know, do not see, do not believe. They're under the power of the, the prince of the power of the air, Paul said. And so that's, that's the problem. And the enemy wants us to think they're the enemy, but Jesus wants us to see them as the ones with the need. And so Paul says, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. He says, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Listen, I don't understand how this fully works. All I know is that our reality is, is, is riding parallel to another reality. And there's a very thin membrane that separates these two realities. There's this angelic and demonic reality, and there's this human reality. And that reality plays some role in our reality. It infects, affects, challenges, manipulates the world that we live in. Now, oddly, we learned earlier in Ephesians that the church can teach the angelic world. So we also have an impact in their world, but they have a unique impact in ours. And Paul wants us to understand that in the demonic realm, there's these structures and stratas of authority and power and manipulation and influence that works out things in our sphere of reality. 
to affect the church and to push against us and to override the purposes of the gospel. That's why Paul says we wrestle. We wrestle. Wrestling is not a distant sport. Wrestling is locked in on the sand, fighting, going to the ground, tangling. That, that's our, 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 our reality. When we think about the spiritual battle, the spiritual battle doesn't happen with politicians at the Capitol. It doesn't happen with directors making a movie that challenges what we believe. It doesn't happen with pundits trying to push an agenda. It happens in our homes, in our marriages, with our parenting, in our minds, in our hearts, in our affections, in our desires. We wrestle. So Paul says, man, we wrestle tight, face-to-face, close. It's agonizing. It's fatiguing. I wrestled in high school. There is no sport harder because it drains you so fast. So fast. And so Paul says, man, you got to be finding that power of God, not your own power. You do it in him, not just for him, because you wrestle. You wrestle with a cosmic force that is so outside of anything you've ever experienced. He says, because of this, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, having done all to stand firm. Listen, I'll be the first to tell you, this is a strange war with unconventional, bizarre weapons, right? And weapons forged on the anvils of heaven and cross and resurrection. It's not rooted in our ability to leverage legislation or rights or force or arms, those kinds of things. It just doesn't work that way. So Paul says you have to take up arms and resist. You just have to take up the spiritual arms that bring resistance. And you do this on the evil day. And some people ask, well, what is the evil day? I would say every day you're being hunted by the enemy is an evil day. Right? Just read every day as the evil day because every day he wants to target your family, your fidelity, or your faith. He just wants to. He wants to target your church. He wants to target the gospel. He wants to target everything that Jesus loves. And therefore, Paul says, stand firm. Verse 14, he says, stand therefore, having fastened the belt of truth. He starts to get into this description of armor. All right, don't leave. Read pages 42 to 78 before you go. Okay, no. Um, all right, so, hey, if the bell's going to ring, you've got to make sure you at least get the homework out there. Okay, so, so you stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. For a Roman soldier, the belt was the thing that ties the tunic all together so it isn't flapping in combat. Because if your tunic's all flapping around and you're fighting, somebody can grab your tunic, it can get caught so you can't get your sword or arm around or whatever else. And so they knew that if they're going to be effective in combat, they had to tie up everything that could be loose. And so Paul uses this great analogy and says, you know what, for the Christian, truth ties up the loose things in our lives. Because we have a lot of loose things, and if we're not aware of those things, you know what, they can get in the way. And so Paul says, man, make sure you are people of the truth. Truth here has two basic ideas. The first is theology, right? And you may go, ah, theology is a drag. No, theology is the study of God. It's the knowledge of God. It's the love of God. It's the worship of God. That is truth. And so Paul's like, make sure you know the one true God as he defines himself, Father, Son, and Spirit, and let that be the all-consuming truth of your life. And then from that, know this other truth, who you are in him, your identity, your identity that's rooted in your theology, what God has done in you and through you and for you because of his love and grace. Now, I'll tell you why this is sometimes a challenge for us, and that is this. We don't always love saying that we believe that there is one single truth. 
He says, man, tie up the loose ends with truth. And we go, oh, man, but we sound so arrogant when we say there's only one truth. Right? We'll even get hammered for it. Oh, you Christians are so arrogant. You're so elitist. You think there's just this one way to heaven. There's only this one true God. And what about everybody else? And what happens to the person that ever hears? And all these questions that are fair questions. But, man, I, I don't mind the questions. What I, what I get concerned about is that we as Christians get fearful of actually believing or saying we believe there's one truth. And that's just what the enemy wants, right? So the enemy is, is like, man, how do I get them? Well, I should get them freaked out about claiming truth because if they bind themselves up with truth, that's a tough fight. If I get them actually a little nervous about the conviction of truth, oh, that's an easy fight. And so he says, oh, man, I don't want them to believe the truth because, again, I'm the father of lies. Right? They start believing truth, that's, that's tough. They start believing who God is who they are in God, what God has promised. They live their life according to this belief that there really is an afterlife and God rewards for how we lived in this life. If they believe that, they'll make a difference. I don't want them to make a difference. So if I can just minimize the idea of truth, make truth more of my truth, my opinion, that'll go, that'll go well. Paul says, man, you've got to fasten on the belt truth. Next, he says, put on the breastplate of righteousness. Right? And this means two things. One is this. Because of the cross, right, we are as righteous as Christ. We're as righteous as Christ. There's the quiz. If I say, who here is as righteous as Christ? The answer is everybody who knows Christ. Now, I'm not saying you're as godly as Christ. I'm not saying you're as holy as Christ. But I am saying you are as righteous as Christ. That's what the Bible affirms. Because of the cross of Christ, you're as righteous as Christ. Here's the other part of that, though. Because that is your righteousness... Paul would say, live out then that which you are. Live a righteous life. Guard your heart, just like a breastplate does. Guard your heart by pursuing righteous living, righteous decisions, righteous outlooks. There is nothing more relieving to life than pursuing holiness and righteousness. So Paul says that's our distinction. This is how we fight the enemy. We gird up with truth. We put on righteousness. He says also for your shoes... Put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. A Roman soldier had these, these kind of cleats that they would wear. And the way the cleat was formed, it was designed in such a way that the soldier could only advance, he couldn't retreat. Right? So it dig in only good for forward movement. It wasn't fast, but it was forceful. Right? And that's really the essence of what Paul is getting out with the gospel. We are the church. We are the ambassadors. We are the warriors. We are the ones that have the message. And so we should lock arms together in forward movement, bringing the truth of Jesus to bear on a world that needs it. It's lost. It's desperate. It's blind. It's hellbound. We have the message. And imagine if all of us were passionate about that. The least on-fire gift in the church is evangelism. The thing most of us will never do in the entire course of our life is share the cross and resurrection with a person literally by saying, hey, did you know that Jesus died for your sins? Here's the message of the cross. Here's the message of the resurrection. Would you like to pray to receive Christ? 90% of us will never have that conversation with somebody we know. 90% of us. Right? Because it's like, oh, I don't know how they'll take it, and it's kind of weird, and I don't even know how to open up that conversation. And, and I understand that we may not be certain of how to do it, but we should fight to learn how to do it so we can do it. Right? Even if it makes us uncomfortable, even if it freaks us out, even if we're not sure how they're going to respond, because here's the deal, they're going to hell. If that is, this, this is going to go back to if we really believe it. If we really believe 
this battle, if we really believe hell, we'll have more of an urgency. If we just don't believe it that much, it's just not that urgent. For Paul, it's so urgent. He's like, oh, man, just, just shoo up. But the gospel of peace. He says in verse 16, and in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows or darts of the evil one. A Roman soldier had a shield that was about two feet wide and four feet long or tall. It was coated in a thick leather over wood, and that leather was then dipped in an oil so that when flaming arrows from enemies would come, it would hit the, the shield, go into the leather, and extinguish the flame. Right? That was their shield. And so Paul uses that illustration to say, that's how we live our life. Here's what's interesting. Up to this point, every other bit of armor you strap on. This is the first one you take up. We actually have to take up faith because we have to realize there is an enemy with schemes and he shoots to kill. He shoots to kill. He wants to wipe us out, right? And Paul says, you, 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 need, this, you need this faith. Right? In fact, even Roman soldiers, when they would face enemies that would fire flaming arrows, their whole intention was to wait for them to come and try to catch them. Because if the arrow hit the ground, it would ignite fire, a fire and, and kill more than just themselves. Right? They knew that if these things were allowed to land, they would spread, so they would fight to never let them land by catching them. Right? And so Paul even knows that. There's going to be schemes that the devil fights at the church, or fires at the church, and if we don't try to absorb those and extinguish those, man, that can have a devastating effect on those around us. And so we need faith. And we're going to need faith because you know what? You're going to face anger. You and I are going to face anger and we're going to be like, that person hurt me and I want to get my pound of flesh and it's going to take faith to say, oh, but vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I'm going to give it to God. It takes faith to do that. It takes faith to love your enemy. It takes faith to accept persecution with joy. It takes faith to believe that, you know what, if you give up in this life, you get in the life to come. It takes faith to believe that if we share in this life, it's reward in the life to come. It takes faith to stand against a trial or a temptation or doubt or apathy or alternative. It takes faith. In fact, it's still that thing. I, this whole year for me, 2013 is the year of seeking Christ. We called it Seek 13. And, and for me even, it's really a year of trying to grow in faith. Not being so smart that it's detrimental to my own spiritual good. Right? Taking up that shield. So Paul says, take up the shield of faith. You can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Additionally, he says, take up the helmet of salvation. Helmets have two purposes. The first is protection. You guessed that one. The second is confidence. If you're wearing a helmet, you're more confident. You just are, right? Headbutt your buddy without a helmet. Then headbutt your buddy with a helmet. You're more confident, you know? You're just more confident with a helmet. And, and I really look at this with Paul, and, and I think about my own life, and, and here was my walk away this week. I thought, you know what? If I really believed the message of the gospel and the promises of scripture, he, here's, here's what my perspective should be in life. I'm invincible. I'm immortal at this point. Literally, because of Christ, I have eternal life. I'm not a god, I'm just a mortal. I'm never going to die. If I leave this life, I didn't die, I just transferred, man. It's like, beam me up, Scotty. That's what happened, right? I don't die. I'm a mortal, invincible, invincible, because of the gospel. So if I would just slap that helmet on that says I'm protected and I'm confident, I would live very different. But I live in such a way that I act like I'm helmetless and i got to make sure that I protect myself in this current climate. 
instead of going headlong for him. But if I take up the helmet of salvation, I'm aware. It says, and also, there is the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. The sword of the Roman soldier that Paul refers to here is just short. It's only about this long. It's not very big at all. It's not the big broad sword. It's this little short sword, and there's a reason. It's what we've been saying, the same reason that you wrestle. It's close combat. It's in your face. It's in your home. It's in your heart, mind, life, proximity. And so we need to be wielding the word of God in such a way that we can face those close combat battles in life. Right? To wield it in such a way that we are ready for the big show that's going to come every single day because every day is a day that we're hunted. Every day. And here's the thing I would like to say. Um, when, it, when it comes to this, this book right here, of which I, I, I'm going to put myself in the same camp of what I'm about to say. I'm beating up on all of us in love. Amen. All right. So um, we listen to God's sermons uh, maybe an hour a week. We listen to Satan's sermons a lot more per week. Right? I mean, we do. We turn on the radio and we hear sermons, TV. We hear sermons, newspaper, books, magazines, cultural climate, general kind of vibe of our society. He's constantly preaching. He has 10 billion messages to preach, all designed to cause us to not to want to listen to this one. Not that we don't affirm that it's true. He doesn't care if we say, I believe the Bible, as long as we don't read it. He doesn't care if we say, it is our conviction that this should be protected, as long as we don't crack it. That's all he wants. And sometimes this book, in my own life, um, it will stay in the driver's or in the passenger side of my car from Sunday to Sunday. Sometimes it's an awesome coaster by my bed. Sometimes it collects dust unlike nobody's business. Right? Sometimes I read it and I go, gosh, this is really dull, man. Numbers is a lot of numbers. Um, right? Or worse, we go, I believe it, but I don't believe all of it. Or I believe it, but it's not really practical. So when there's a thing that's more practical, I'm going to go with the practical thing, and I'm not going to go with the biblical thing because, again, that's just a little bit more convenient and expedient. Right? This is all the stuff the enemy wants. Again, he doesn't care if we believe it, just as long as we don't obey it or read it or seek it. Then he's good. He's good because we're not dangerous then. We're not wielding anything. We're not open carrying we just leave it at home in the closet. He's good with that. We should be people of the word. And that might mean things like, you know what? We should strive to, to, to hear this word. You know, like on my phone app, I have this little Bible app that can just read to me. And I do that a lot. I take walks and I just listen to the Bible, right? We hear. We should read it. We should study it. We should memorize it. We should meditate on it. What does that really mean? That's what we should do. Maybe it's things like you're listening to podcasts or reading Christian blogs. Hey, man, turn on Christian radio. I know some of you go like, hey, man, but Christian radio sucks. You know what? Satan music sucks, all right? So um, it's, like, it's like filling our mind with something healthy and Christ-honoring and revering because we listen to a lot of Satan's sermons, a lot of them, and we need to hear God's. Paul goes on to say in verse 18, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer 
and supplication. Here's what's cool about this grammatically, right? Going back to the original language that Paul writes in, grammatically, when he says stand in verse 14, it's grammatically linked all the way to verse 18 with praying. You're like, I went to public school for English. I don't know what that means. All right, so um, here's what that means. He says, stand. And you go, all right, how do I stand? He goes, well, part of the standing is all this weaponry, but the way you stand is prayer. Right? So the idea is all of that armament is your, your battle gear, right? But our fighting style is prayer. Right? So if you think about martial arts, or you watch the UFC, and you go, that, that fighter's got a ground and pound style where this fighter, you know, he stays up. You know, there's different styles of fighting. For the Christian, prayer is our fighting style. It's how we stand. So it's not enough to say, you know what, in my life, all right, I'm going to gear up, I'm going to have the Word of God, I'm going to have faith, truth, gospel, righteousness. You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get all these things together. I'm going to get all the armament, and I'm going to war. If we don't pray, we have no fighting style. If we don't pray, we have no resource for strength or might. It's not being done in him. It's being done for him through me, and that will break down. I will always, always give up under the strain if it's not in his strength. So we pray at all times in the Spirit. At all times. When it's good, when it's bad, when it's happy, when it's sad, when it's frustrating, when it's elating, when it's loving, angry, whatever. It just doesn't matter the context. When it's convenient or inconvenient, whatever it is, we pray. We pray at all times in the Spirit because He guides us and illuminates us and empowers us to what we're supposed to do, right? In fact, this last week, there was something really cool. Um, all of the evangelical churches in Duval got together for this thing called One Voice. In fact, I think we have a slide right there. There's some pictures of, of One Voice. And this was a thing where the pastors came together and talked about it and felt like God had called uh, the churches to come together just to worship and pray. And I want to tell you, I have been a part of a lot of events and been to a lot of different Christian things. This ranks in the top three all-time most amazing things I've ever been a part of. Right? Most amazing. Because here's what happens the Church of Christ Duval chapter gets together, right? And they begin to pray and to worship for God's glory to be revealed, for his gospel to go forth, for the enemy to be thwarted in this place, and that place just erupted with worship and prayer. Hundreds of people huddled together, people that didn't even know each other, but they know Christ together, and that makes all the difference in the world, praying for our city. And here's the reality. When the church came together like that to pray, we kicked in Satan's front door, and he is fighting back. He's fighting back. He's going to continue to fight back. But we fight as we pray. That's how we fight. As a church, we have this thing called breach. We meet on Wednesday morning at 6.30 till about 7.20 in the morning. We meet on Sundays back here in the music room from 8.20 to 8.40. And we're just praying, God, bless our church, bless the city, may your gospel go forth. But can I tell you the odd thing about that? Um, typically, we have about four people at breach on Wednesday. And until recently, with the worship team joining, we would have one to three people praying on Sunday before the service. Now, I'm not saying that it fits your schedule, it might not, and that's totally fine. I'm not, trying, I'm not raising the question of whether you couldn't be a part of it. I'm raising the question if you could, but you don't, why? And then more deeply, in your own personal life, uh, if you look at your schedule and your calendar and you don't try to intentionally have prayer be a part of your life, here's the reality. It's not going to happen. And the enemy loves it. He'd love it if we were really busy doing a thousand different ministries, putting in tons of hours with activity, as long as we don't pray. 
right? Because he knows when there's prayer, there's power. And he doesn't want power in what we do. He just wants function in what we do. And so prayer suffers in the church because he knows there's power. So he wants to suppress it. But Paul says we pray. We pray, we pray, we pray. Verse 18 goes on to say, To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that the word may be given to me to open my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in change, that I might declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Here's what I love about this. Paul, we always look at him and say, that guy was courageous, that guy was going to preach the word no matter what, he wasn't afraid of anything. No, more often than not, Paul was afraid. Uh, you look at little glimpses of his heart, and he goes to Corinth, he's freaked out, and doesn't want to preach. Jesus has to personally show up and say, dude, you've got to go preach. You, you see this in Colossians, you see this in Ephesians, where he's like, pray for me to be bold. Why? Because in myself, I'm not bold. I'm just as afraid as the next guy. I need to be reminded of I have a message that I ought to speak. Sometimes I don't want to speak it. How do I find the boldness? People pray for me for that boldness. If we're not praying, we won't be bold. If we're not praying for one another, we won't be strong. And so Paul says, pray. Pray. We pray because prayer dispatches the Holy Spirit before us. We pray because it musters courage in us. We pray because it fortifies us for the temptations that come against us. And we pray because it unleashes God's strength through us. And so Paul says, we stand, we pray, we fight. And if there's anything I want you to leave here today with, it's that ma- mindset that says, we as the church of Christ, we stand, we pray, we fight. You know, what do we do? We stand, we pray, we fight. What is our calling in life? We stand, we pray, we fight. What is our job? We stand, we pray, we fight. That's the message of the church. We stand, we pray, we fight. After such a powerful message, how does Paul round out this letter? Very personally. Verse 21. He says, So that you may also know how I am doing, I'm going to send Tychicus to you, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, and he'll tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Right? So there's still, we're all in battle. It's this epic thing. But we lock arms individually, person to person, in friendship and relationship and camaraderie. And so he wants them to know his heart. And he says in verse 23, Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. There's those hallmark words. Peace, faith, love, grace. All of which brings us to that place of a love for Jesus that cannot be corrupted by the environment that we live in, but rather brings truth to that environment. Powerful stuff. So it's quite a simple close to a book that's a battle cry. But the book's a battle cry. And so I want to close not only our morning, but I want to close the book of Ephesians with the essence of that cry going through the book. Because there's two things that Paul does in the book. He wants us to know, and he wants us to go, right? That is the thrust. First three chapters, know. Second three chapters, go. And so here's what he wants us to know. 
He wants us to know that in Christ, you as an individual, we as a church, you are blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. You are chosen to holiness. You are predestined to adoption. You are redeemed by His blood. You are forgiven of all your sins. You are lavished in grace, given an inheritance, sealed in the Spirit, raised up with Christ, seated in heavenly places, brought near by the blood of Christ, strengthened with power in your inner being, and loved by Jesus with a love so potent, heights can't measure it, depths can't measure it, length can't measure it, breadth can't measure it, for it surpasses the very substance of understanding. He says, know who you are, know what he's done, know what he's worked in you, and from this you can go. Go, walking worthy of the calling to which you were called, as one body, with one hope, under one Lord, through one spirit, using your gifts, speaking the truth, building the church, dropping your old ways, donning your new ways, being light in dark places, displaying homes where Christ is the head, dealing in the world where Christ is the priority, and doing battle for the kingdom of Christ, in the power of Christ, in truth, righteousness, gospel, faith, salvation, and word, by, in, and for the praise of his glorious pray together. Jesus, we love you. We love your grace. We need your grace. We are easily distracted. We're easily diverted. We easily turn to idols that we just see as practical things of this world. I pray that we will go against that grain. That we will be your unstoppable force that the church will be alive and strong in the things that you've given it. And we will take our responsibility seriously. They will come against the enemy, but we will love those who are blinded by the enemy. We will stand for truth in the face of his lies. That we will be faithful because you are faithful to us. We love you and thank you. We need you and praise you in your name.